trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, I appreciate you being a part of my growing audience of wrong thinkers. I don't want to sound too dramatic, but, uh, you know, the, the cure to so many of the problems that we see today, I think hinges on our ability as individuals to question, really question, everything that we're being told through mass media. And yes, that would include anything you hear coming out of my mouth as well, because frankly, if you're not thinking clearly and independently, there's a very good chance you are being led by the nose with this little ring called groupthink. Well, as long as everybody else believes this, I feel pretty safe. Trust me, I've been there. I've been a comfortable adherent of groupthink. I'm in recovery now, and (laughs) frankly, I don't think I would have it any other way. I've got some great sponsors who make this program possible, including Dixie Chiropractic, HSL Ammo, Sewing and Quilting Center, Monticello College, Life Saving Food, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. So by way of explanation, why do I do what I do? And you might even be questioning, well, what exactly is it that you do, Brian? You talk a lot, but I I have this great love of freedom. And I believe that uh, I have a personal duty to, to use uh, my personal stewardship, basically what, whatever talents and abilities and passions God has given me, to speak up in defense of truth and in defense of freedom. And I felt this way for a long time. I mean, it's been probably 30 years that I have devoted to uh, to really speaking out. Now, that doesn't mean that I had it all figured out from the beginning. And yes, I have been this voice of authority on everything. Um, it's I'm still a work in progress, and I'm still learning as I go. But along the way, there have been certain voices and minds and philosophies that have helped to shape my understanding of why freedom matters what the principles and practices are that it rests upon, and and why we have to be so careful not to be led into counterfeits that, uh, you know, tell us, well, do you know, our democracy is under attack, and that's why we have to have you do everything we say, and if you don't do it, you're a domestic terrorist, which is pretty much what's happening right now with the January 6th committee. It's all about our democracy, which the political class really is saying, our power. So I want to come back to some of the basics. Okay, let's talk about freedom. Never mind labels, Republican, Democrat, whatever, communist, socialist. Let's talk about the principles that underlie proper government. Can we do that? Okay. Frederick Bastiat is the name that comes to mind when it comes to discussing this. And I, you know... I don't know that, uh, that I've, had, I've had a lot of philosophers that have helped me with my understanding throughout uh, my life. Bastiat is probably one of the most impactful just because this guy's words have stood the test of time. And he has uh, he has been my go to source for so many people who are just starting to get their minds around. Why does this all matter? And what's the difference? I mean, come on. Politicians tell me this and even respected politicians say this. You know, why shouldn't I believe them? Well, I want to share with you some thoughts from an essay by Tyler Brand, writing for the Foundation for Economic Education. And it is such a great bit of of information here from Frederick Bastiat on the connection between socialism, communism, and protectionism. 
This was written actually back in, let's see, 2019. So it's, it's a few years old, but still holds true. Tyler Brandt says, Frederick Bastiat's writings truly are a gift that keeps on giving. His economic analysis from the early 19th century still reverberates today, more than 150 years after his untimely death in 1850 from tuberculosis. Now, reading through his works is like walking through a garden overflowing with fruit ripe for picking. The hardest part is deciding which fruit to pick. He says, this time on my walk through Bastiat's garden, I decided to pick one of his fruits from the law on the topic of protectionism. Protectionism is hardly a debate particular to the age of Trump. You remember, Trump was pretty big on on protectionism. It's been hotly contested for centuries. Writing in France in 1846, Bastiat puts his stake in the ground in his satirical essay, The Candlemaker's Petition. And the essay is a stinging and humorous criticism of the arguments in favor of protectionism, wherein Bastiat argues that we should block out the sun to benefit the industries surrounding candle-making and other forms of illumination. Now, obviously, nobody in their right mind would argue in favor of this, but it's an absurd conclusion we would reach if we followed the logical extent of protectionism. Four years after that essay, Bastiat released his magnum opus, The Law, a treatise on natural rights written two years after the Third French Revolution. In the book, Bastiat observes the similarities between socialism, communism, and protectionism. And here's how Bastiat puts it, quote, It is to be pointed out, however, that protectionism, socialism, and communism are basically the same plant in three different stages of its growth. All that can be said is that legal plunder is more visible in communism because it is complete plunder, and in protectionism because the plunder is limited to specific groups and industries. Thus it follows that of the three systems, socialism is the vaguest, the most indecisive, and consequently the most sincere stage of development. End quote. So Tyler Brent says the commonality of the three systems, Bastiat points out, is plunder. A more common word we use nowadays would be theft or coercion, all of which are well outside the proper domain of law, as Bastiat says. If the main purpose of the law is to protect individuals from having their persons, life, and property violated, and taxation slash plunder is a violation of property, then taxation being legal is a perversion of the law. Even more than being a violation of property rights, Bastiat argues it is a it is a the opposite rather of property rights. In fact, on the term plunder, he says, quote, I use it in its scientific acceptance as expressing the idea opposite to that of property, meaning wages, land, money, or whatever. When a portion of wealth is transferred from the person who owns it without his consent and without compensation, and whether by force or by fraud, to that person who does not own it, then I say that property is violated. An act of plunder is committed. End quote. Now, accepting Bastiat's definition, we then have a foundational argument against all three systems whether they be Republican-backed, Democrat-backed, or independently-backed. Tyler Brandt says the exigencies specific to new problems, issues, or political demands need not matter when refuting systems of socialism, communism, or protectionism. What matters is the principle. Any system that violates the rights of the individual is an unjust system. It doesn't matter if there's a trade deficit or if there's income inequality. So long as a man labors for his bread... He should decide what to do with it, or he should decide, rather, to do with it what he wants. 
Any policy based on coercing the individual into forfeiting his bread is unjust, Bastiat says. The means of coercion, whether it's the barrel of a gun versus the threat of jail time or property confiscation, doesn't matter, nor do the ends for which the plunder is taken. Foundation for for Economic Education founder Leonard E. Reed echoed Bastiat when he said, anything that's peaceful, any system or action based on peace and non-coercion is acceptable. As for systems based on legalized plunder, well, Bastiat says, quote, as long as it is admitted that the law may be diverted from its true purpose, that it may violate property instead of protecting it, then everyone will want to participate in making the law either to protect himself against plunder or to use it for plunder. Political questions will always be prejudicial, dominant, and all-absorbing. There will be fighting at the door of the legislative palace, and the struggle within will be no less furious. To know this, it is hardly necessary to examine what transpires in the French and English legislatures. Merely to understand the issue is to know the answer. End quote. Now, Bastiat's words are just as true today as when he wrote them with a quill pen in 19th century France. How much of the clamoring and bickering and anger we see today is the result of factions, each vying for their preferred forms of taxation or economic protection? And I would just add to that, that's true at the federal level right down to the local level. Tyler Brandt says those who believe government to be the chief provider of services seem to demand proper funding for an infinite amount of perpetually underfunded services. But here's the kicker. Nothing will ever be properly funded if the government is in charge of doing so. This is the result of the law not being confined within its proper domain where plunder is both morally and legally encouraged. So the tie between socialism, communism and protectionism is plunder. And its acceptability is the cause of most of our political squabbling. Tyler Brent says we should heed Bastiat's words and keep the law within its proper domain, the collective organization of the individual right to defend our persons, liberty, and property. And he says anything more than that is an improper function of the law. Well, that sounds pretty simplified. Yeah, that's it. That's the point. It really is that simple. If you haven't read The Law by Frederick Bastiat, it's the best starting point I can think of for somebody who really wants to get their minds around the principles and practices of liberty. I'll have a link to Tyler's article in the show notes, which you can access at thebrianheidshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Want to give a quick shout-out here to SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. You can check out the link I provide in my show notes under Sponsors. Click on it if you would like. Better still, if you live in southern Utah, I would encourage you, just trot right into their store. It's at 779 South Bluff Street in St. George. And this is where you will encounter the finest sewing establishment well, in southern Utah. Actually, if you're within 200 miles of southern Utah, it's probably worth your time to go there. This is a family-owned business. It's been in operation since 1984, and it is really a one-stop shop for all things that you would need for sewing, from machines up to the really high-end embroidery and quilting machines, the long-arm quilters. I mean, the sky's the limit. 
You can do as much or as little as you'd like. Entry-level sewing machines are under $200. All the thread, all the supplies, all the, the things that you would need, including service and training, how to use it, right there under one roof. Oh, and it's owned by some really great people. Teresa and Eric Alsop are the current owners. Reach out, hit them up, tell them, hey, Brian's talking about you on his show, but better still, do some business with them and discover how much fun it is to make things for yourself or for your loved ones. Sewingandquiltingcenter.com. Well, the left's agitation for more gun control is just as persistent as it is misguided. It's also very anti-liberty. Got a great essay here from D. Parker from AmericanThinker.com. What's next for the anti-liberty left's gun confiscation agenda? Now, D. Parker says, bluntly speaking, their non-solutions will lead to more mass murders. So they're going to be agitating in the future, but that was always part of the plan. And you can easily guess what's going to happen next with the historic BSCA heavy emphasis on the BS, by simply looking at what the anti-liberty left has done in the past. Since their non-solutions were never meant to work, there will be more mass murders. This will give them another opportunity to exploit other people's pain for their political gain. But you have to understand, this is a feature, not a bug, for the liberticidal left. Anti-liberty leftists have an oddly different worldview than normal people, especially when it comes to problems and crises they've created. They see these as just a means to gain power and screw things up so they can rush in, seize more power, and screw things up even more in a never-ending cycle of failure. Therefore, they are very particular about their solutions. While they pretend to be open to doing something, anything, to supposedly keep people safe. Now, you'll notice their solutions are carefully designed to avoid solving the problem, while they enhance their power and set up for future power grabs. See, solving the problem is the last thing they want to do because if they inadvertently fix things, they've just negated their rationale for existence. We also know where things are going to go from here because they've always followed the same script year after year. Now, if you've ever wondered how the anti-liberty left can make the easy access to guns claim with a straight face, well, here's a simple, simple explanation. They follow a two-step crisis exploitation process that starts with that assertion during these situations. It's their way of making incremental moves toward gun confiscation while they swear up and down that they aren't incrementally moving towards gun confiscation. If all the propaganda and uh, if all the propaganda media rather and libercidal left uh, reactions seem like deja vu, it's because they're always the same. They start off by making all kinds of demands for a ban on undefined military-style weapons of war, licensing schemes, or unconstitutional control over private property with expanded background checks. But now the new wrinkle is unconstitutional gun confiscation orders, or what is it, enhanced uh, something protection orders? Anyway, their new assault weapon of choice against the Bill of Rights. All of that should be a red flag, if you will, to anyone that cherishes the cause of liberty. The idea is to push the Overton window as far as the, to the authoritarian left as possible, making some demands seem reasonable by comparison. And then anti-liberty leftists will call for some sort of compromise. As usual, this is just another example of the liberty deniers lying. A compromise means both sides get something in a deal. This is a compromise where we lose more of our freedom for absolutely nothing in return. Anti-liberty leftists get to place new restrictions on our sensible civil rights. 
and they get to virtue signal about about it while they're pretending that they are liberal and they don't have to give up anything in return. Now, Dee Parker says, look, as we just witnessed, any compromise and anything they get is hailed as historic. A day in our great representative republic unparalleled for at least 20 minutes or so, and then they begin moving on to step two. Now, you really have to watch out for the whiplash in this part of the process. And this is where they suddenly decide that more needs to be done, and they start downplaying the formerly, uh, formerly historic achievement they touted mere moments ago. This step will have some timeline variations, but the important aspect is that when the next attack takes place, they can all play that same game all over again. And after the anti-liberty left has successfully diminished the latest surrender deal, they can reset things back to step one where any restrictions on liberty are forgotten and they can quickly tee up the easy access to guns rhetoric once again. Then with the next mass murder tragedy, they can once again call out for something, anything to be done. Something, anything to solve the problem, if that anything is exactly what they specify at the moment. This way they can never be wrong and they gain more political power each time they screw up. Is there any wonder why they play this game every time around? I'll have a link to this article, and I would recommend to take a look at uh, at some of the links included within this article because there there are plenty. If you want to, you know, be fully informed on this, here's a great opportunity. I think this also illustrates something that I know is hard for some people, just because. Look, I don't want to sound like some lawless, raving lunatic, and and I get it. Drawing a line in the sand, some people are going to say that's exactly what you are. If you're not doing what what a politician says or what a politician's written on paper, you are. Uh, what is it? Uh, an insurrectionist. You're a seditionist. You're an outlaw. But that ignores the idea that what if a politician wrote things on paper and, you know, called it official, but it was morally wrong? What then? Oh, I know. They're the law and order types. Well, you obey the law and you work to change it. You know, at this point, I don't know if that's the best strategy or not. Now, look, I'm trusting that. You're the kind of person who understands what it means to aggress against someone, to initiate force against another person, to behave in an unjust fashion against someone else. And I'm certainly not advocating for that. I am saying, though, you're also probably wise enough that you can figure out when someone is doing it to you. And the question I would hope that you would be able to ask yourself is, hey, Am I morally bound to participate or even to help with my own enslavement? Because that's ultimately what every little common sense gun control measure is working towards. Every incremental step that is taken to implement gun control, as D. Parker points out, is a step towards tyranny and away from freedom. And these these bloody headlines and, you know, these... Horrific mass shootings, which, you know, tragic as they may be, are still very much an aberration. We, we suffer from availability bias where, oh, my gosh, that's all they're talking about on the news. We have this impression it must be going on everywhere. Everybody's at danger for, or in danger from it. Not so. But the fear and the uncertainty that's created by the way that this is presented in the media and exploited by politicians sadly is enough to convince some people, a lot of young people particularly, uh, maybe the best thing we should do is stand in solidarity and give up our rights or make sure that people don't have access. We must do something now. Get these guns off our streets. Stop gun violence. They're not even sure what they're chanting for. They're just 
you know, virtue signaling. I'm doing something. Look at me. I'm helping. Look, I'm speaking to you as someone who loves liberty and has has absolutely decided, you know what? There are some things in this life that are worth more than life itself. I think liberty is one of them. I've already made the decision in my mind that uh, I won't be uh, I won't be complying. I won't be going along with my own enslavement. Now, if that strikes you as particularly radical and dangerous, I would just like to remind you: I'm a peaceful guy, minding my own business, doing my best to make the world a better place in my own way. All I ask is to be left alone. But I got some people who are aggressing and who refuse to leave me alone. How far should I allow them to go? Really? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'd like to send a shout out to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah. Heather is your go-to person. She and her team can help you if you are in the market for a home loan. Doesn't matter whether it's a uh, VA loan or a traditional loan or even a reverse mortgage. The Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has decades of experience and the stability and the clout to help you get the loan you need without delay. And best of all, this is for any of my listeners, either in Utah or Idaho. Heather is there to help you. All you have to do is call her, 435-703-4522. Her NMLS ID is 715386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Now, I get this is kind of an uncomfortable question to ask, but uh, you got to be pretty brave before you go out to go around wondering out loud, hey, just how bad is the economy? I noticed gas took another 10 cent jump overnight. And uh, yeah, it feels like a kick in the stomach every time I go to fill up the car. I mean, come on, 50 bucks used to be all right. Well, it was, you know, about 50 bucks to fill up. And now trying to just keep it topped off from a half tank, it's 50 bucks or more. Crazy stuff. But how bad is it really? Well, Blaine L. Pardo, writing for AmericanThinker.com, I think he has a pretty good take on this. He says, two weeks ago, my wife and I drove from Virginia to Michigan and back on our annual pilgrimage to visit family. Covering roughly a third of the nation, our trip was a good opportunity to check the pulse on how the economy is really doing. And he says, I stress really because it's hard to believe that inflation is as low as the government reports. Much of the state of the American economy isn't numbers as much as what you see, feel, and experience as a consumer. By the way, I would agree with what he's saying here. Now, he says, we expected high gas prices. We found them everywhere. The highest we paid was in Ann Arbor, Michigan at five forty-nine dollars a gallon. And what we found ourselves doing is filling the tank more often on the trip so that the sticker shock was smaller. But even then, you winced at the price to fill half a tank. The Pennsylvania and Ohio Turnpike rest areas generally have three to four small food vendors in their food courts. But he says that the ones where we stopped, those numbers have dropped to one or perhaps two. And those are these are not temporary or staffing closures either. Those vendors are gone. Their space is abandoned. Those that were open often had reduced hours and signs were up stating that due to supply shortages, some menu options might not be available. 
So while no one travels the turnpike system for its food, he says the element of choice, something we've all grown accustomed to, was non-existent. He says, I expected more traffic on the highways. Much of the driving was done on two separate Saturdays. Parts of the road that were usually hectic were clear sailing. As much as the media says people are traveling, they aren't doing it on the turnpikes, and either they're avoiding these roads to dodge the toll costs or the media isn't in tune with how many people can afford to travel. Road construction was big in Michigan. The state has cornered the market on orange construction barrels and has excelled at closing off major roadways, but he says we actually saw little real construction taking place. Still, any progress on rehabilitation of the road infrastructure has to be good news. Some construction was driven by the county, the state, and some were federal highway projects. None of these groups apparently coordinate their activities. Ways literally routed us through neighborhoods in Detroit in the Detroit suburbs to get around. It's that disjointed. Now, he says, we went to two small towns during our trip, St. Clair Shores and Marshall. He says, my, mar- my nephew is the owner of Copper Hop Brewing in St. Clair Shores, and his business is booming. They've worked with the local community there to come up with innovative and creative downtown events to bring in consumers. Like many entrepreneurs, he has contingency plans in place in case the economy goes into a recession. For now, as always, when times are good, people drink, and when times are bad, people drink. Then he says, we went to my family's hometown, Marshall, Michigan, a quaint town, a slice of Americana. Now, the core of their main street had small businesses still in operation, but once you got out of the heart of the town, there were more than a handful of empty storefronts. Small business is the heart and soul of our economy, and it was clear that it was stretched thin, either from COVID or the inflation that followed. And he says, I found myself wondering if things get worse, how many of the businesses I saw were going to be forced to close up for good. When you go into restaurants, you'll find messages saying that the prices are higher than shown on the menus. We went into two places that had brand new menus, presumably to reflect the inflationary prices. In Biden's America, beer and the menu printing businesses are the only safe bets. He says no matter where we went, no matter the circumstances, there's one topic that comes up first and foremost, and that is inflation. The people we met with, family and otherwise, were not talking about the January 6th committee or Roe v. Wade. They talked about their dollars not going as far as they did six months ago. Some of it's complaining. Much of it is concern as to how bad things are going to get. He says the people we spoke with felt gas and food prices were at least a third more than what they were paying a year before, if not double. And finally, there's angst in the voices of many Americans. Many believe we're already in a recession, that the government is either lying about the inflation rate or has no clue as to the true state of the economy. The less than subtle hints about Americans transitioning to electric vehicles are falling on frustrated ears. They feel that the government is not paying attention to the real issues that they're dealing with. Worse yet, there's a feeling of concern and fear over what's to come. Worry about how bad things can get. While Biden was out falling off a bike, many Americans were wondering if they would have to use one to get to and from work or if their jobs were still going to be there a year from now. Again, this is Blaine Pardo, New York Times bestselling and award-winning author. And I know you're, well, that's anecdotal, Brian. What he's talking about is just, you know, his own personal observations. But, hey, you have eyes and ears. I would say what he's describing pretty well parallels what what I encounter just, you know, around my own community. 
I mean, not everybody's walking around in sackcloth and ashes, so it's not like we were, oh, woe is us and doom and gloom. But you can definitely feel the vibe has shifted and, and people are concerned. In fact, depending on who you talk to, this is my, my experience is the more informed people are, the more deeply they're concerned. Make of that what you will. But it's very, very clear. Your money does not purchase as much this month as it did last month. And when it gets to the point where you have to start, uh, you know, indexing inflation, you know, on a month-to-month basis or even a week-to-week basis, I think we're headed for danger. I mean, I, look, my goal here is not to, to scare you and it's not to, to instill fear or anger. But I would encourage anyone who really has some, some courage and a steely backbone, just do a little bit of research as to what were the conditions like in Weimar, Germany, coming into the, you know, through the 20s and into the early 1930s. What were the conditions like, not just economically, but culturally? I think what you'll find will be surprising. And maybe then it'll start to make a little more sense. When, when you start to see some of the things that, I mean, look, Pride Month's about to come to, a, to an end here, but I, I just got to say it. I have seen more shocking, you know, video snippets on Twitter of things that were right out in the open. Adult men parading around stark naked in front of children. Oh, yeah, it's just part of the pride parade. Now, you can call me a prude if you want, but that's freaking inappropriate. That is that is not right. Even the guys in the G-strings out there twerking for the kids. How does that square with a normal, healthy society? You know the answer, it doesn't. But it's getting really rare to find people who will call it out for what it is and say, gosh, that is that is wrong. That is sick and wrong. Drag queen story hour. I mean, come on. This is this is moving in a direction. And again, I'm I'm urging you, take a look at Weimar Germany. What were the cultural conditions like? And the parallel you're going to find is, yeah, they, they pretty much turned loose of their morality as well. It was anything goes. Debauchery was totally okay. Come on, party hardy rock and roll. We got we to gotta do what we got to do. And then suddenly, for some inexplicable reason, once everybody's morals had been sufficiently watered down or discarded in order to, you know, participate in, you know, the, the newfound sense of freedom, Somebody comes to power who is really, really bad news. Now, the thing I want to understand is why we think we will be any different. That doesn't mean we're going to be wearing funny mustaches and goose-stepping around. But look at the anger the people are expressing over you know, a, a Supreme Court decision that kicked the decision-making on, on, whether, on regulation of abortions back to the states and the people. In other words, put more decision-making power in the hands of the people. And rightly said, you know, the federal government really doesn't have the authority to do this. And the demonic anger and a literal shrieking that has followed. I guess I don't care who this offends, but we are paralleling 1930s Weimar Germany. Why do we expect that we're going to get a different result from what they got when they finally turned loose of sanity and morals? This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I feel like maybe I should apologize a little bit. I kind of got wound up there towards the end of the last segment, but... Maybe I'm just being stubborn. I can't be the only person who is seeing this collective loss of sanity. And I'm not accusing you, mind you. I'm not saying that you're the reason for this. I'm just saying, how can people not recognize where we are headed as a country and as a society? And by the way, speaking of disconnected from reality and and just ongoing insanity, let's take a few moments here and talk about... uh, some of the questions involved uh, are about how involved the FBI was in the events of January 6th, 2021. I know I'm going to sound like a conspiracy nut. I don't care. Julie Kelly, who is one of the best investigative writers on this subject, points out that there are some very key questions about the FBI's involvement that the January 6th committee won't touch with a 10-foot pole. She says the final set of witnesses testifying before the January 6th Select Committee had the potential to shed more light on the government's foreknowledge of the protest on Capitol Hill that day. Jeffrey Rosen, appointed by Donald Trump on Christmas Eve 2020 to replace departing Attorney General William Barr, and two of his deputies gave opening statements and fielded questions for more than two hours last week. None of it had anything to do with the events of January 6, 2021. Instead, Rosen, the Deputy Transportation Secretary under Elaine Chow, wife of Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, before he was promoted in May 2019 to serve as Barr's deputy, spent his time explaining how the former president pushed the Justice Department to investigate election fraud in numerous states after it failed to do so. Rosen recounted multiple requests by Trump, including the appointment of a special counsel. Rosen told the committee members on June 23rd, I will say that the Justice Department declined all of those requests that I was just referencing because we did not think they were appropriate based on the facts and the law as we understood them. Now, most of the hearing focused on what happened the weekend before the Capitol protest. Rosen Rosen vehemently opposed signing a letter authored by Jeffrey Clark, the acting assistant attorney general at the time, that urged Georgia officials to call a special session to examine evidence of voter fraud in that state. Rosen, along with his chiefs and dozens of federal prosecutors, threatened to resign if Trump replaced Rosen with Clark. Now, sadly, Trump didn't take up Rosen's threat. But an offhand comment by Richard Donahue, Rosen's ex-deputy, went unnoticed and unexplored by the committee. Donahue explained that on the afternoon of January 3, 2021, Justice Department leadership met to discuss preparations for January 6th. Preparations, you say? Hmm. Julie Kelly says that disclosure gave committee members the ideal opening to question Rosen about the Justice Department's activities days before the protest. Who attended that meeting? What plans were in place to protect the Capitol and lawmakers if violence erupted? What intelligence did the department, particularly the FBI, receive in advance of January 6th? But committee members asked none of those questions, of course. And the explanation is clear. Rosen, as well as current Justice Department officials, do not want the American people to know about the agency's deep involvement in the events of January 6. She says if Representative Liz Cheney truly meant her stated goal of exposing the truth about January 6th, she would have asked about a January 22, January 2022 bombshell in Newsweek that revealed how Rosen summoned elite commando agents to Quantico that very same weekend to make plans for January 6th. 
The article detailed how, contrary to the perception, Rosen and his colleagues, including FBI Director Chris Wray, have successfully fostered the Justice Department was not caught off guard and flat-footed on January 6. Rosen made a unilateral decision to take the preparatory steps to deploy Justice Department and so-called national forces, Newsweek reporter William Arkin wrote. There was no formal request from the U.S. Capitol Police, the Secret Service, or Metropolitan Police Department. In fact, no external request from any agency. The, just, the leadership in justice and FBI anticipated the worst and decided to act independently, the special operations forces lurking behind the scenes. Now, the specialized units included the FBI's hostage rescue team, a SWAT team, and agents from the U.S. Marshals Service and Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. Snipers were, sna- were staged near congressional buildings and given shoot-to-kill authority. All of the agents were deployed downtown Washington on the morning of January 6, not in the afternoon as the chaos unfolded, a claim Rosen himself has made under oath. Julie Kelly says, according to Newsweek, FBI tactical teams arrived on Capitol Hill early in the day to assist in the collection of evidence at sites, including Republican and Democratic National Party headquarters, where explosive devices were found. Ah, the long-forgotten pipe bomb bomb threat. Not only has that story disappeared from media coverage, it has been completely ignored by the January 6th committee. Nearly 18 months later, the pipe bomb aspect of the January 6th narrative remains one of the murkier events of the day. A hefty reward to find the bomber who allegedly planted the explosives the night before remains unclaimed. FBI officials immediately said the agency would conduct an investigation into what they described as viable devices that could have been detonated resulting in serious injury or death. But no report has been released. And at the oddest angle of all, Politico reported last year that Kamala Harris was inside the Democratic National Committee headquarters when the bomb was located outside the building, raising questions as to how her Secret Service detail overlooked the device during a security sweep before she arrived around 11.30 a.m. on January 6. Now, one would think Representative Adam Kissinger, who publicly cried about the violence that happened that day, would pound the podium demanding an update into a lethal threat that could have taken the life of the incoming vice president and others nearby, or at least asked for specifics as to how Rosen's department initially handled the devices. But as Julie Kelly points out, that did not happen. Readers of American Greatness know why. The pipe bomb scare looks like another FBI hoax, complete with characters tied to the agency. And she says, speaking of characters tied to the FBI, the committee has not addressed an issue of of great interest to most Americans and some congressional Republicans, the involvement of FBI informants or undercover agents in the Capitol protest. Attorney General Merrick Garland last year refused to tell Tom Massey, Representative Tom Massey, how many federal assets participated in the Capitol protest. If any, encouraged others to enter the building and whether any agents did. I believe Garland's exact words were, I'm not going to violate this norm of of, of the the rule of law, and I'm not going to comment on an investigation that's ongoing. Mm. Julie Kelly says Republican senators have also received the silent treatment from the FBI. Jill Sanborn, executive director of the FBI's National Security Branch, stonewalled numerous inquiries by Senator Ted Cruz as to the number of agents and informants who actively participated in the events of January 6th. Sanborn also refused to say how many FBI assets may have incited crimes of violence that day. 
Now, Julie Kelly points out the presence of federal infiltrators is not speculation. The New York Times reported in September that at least two informants infiltrated the Proud Boys and helped breach the Capitol perimeter on January 6. Defense attorneys have disclosed the presence of undercover FBI agents in the vicinity of their clients during the protest. Further, dozens of agitators, including Ray Epps, inexplicably, inexplicably rather, have not been charged for their clear role in stoking the chaos that day. And one has only to look as far as the FBI concocted hoax to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer in 2020 to understand just how far the agency will go to damage Republicans, especially Donald Trump. Sanborn apparently was a top official at the FBI's counterterrorism division at the same time the Whitmer kidnapping plot was devised. Julie Kelly says it's unclear whether the committee has even bothered to interview Christopher Wray. Documenting Ray's knowledge and actions related to January 6th would seem an essential part of the committee's official record. Selectively ignoring his role and that of the agency on January 6th? Well, that points to a cover-up. Now, I understand. Some people would dismiss this as, well, you guys are just uh, grumpy because your guy lost the election. I think there's a little something more that's at stake here. If you look at how the Department of Justice, the FBI, basically the whole federal apparatus has been weaponized, not just against Trump supporters, but anybody who isn't on board with the current administration and is portraying them as domestic extremists, a threat. I mean, you know, the, the you trot out the usual euphemism. It's white nationalists and it's, you know, it's, it's an existential threat. I mean, there's no nice way to put this. But a target is being placed on each and every one of us who understands the difference between legitimate government and legitimate policy and that which is illegitimate. This is by design. This is to condition the American people so that when uh, moves are made against us, it can all be justified and we're just doing this to save our democracy, which again means to save our power. So for all the questions being asked at that January 6th committee, curious the ones that they're not asking this is the brian hyde show a trusted voice of truth and light god gave me a gift i shovel well i shovel very well and a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep we've got a blind date with destiny Looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is the Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, I'm here to help you take down the mental prison that's being constructed all around us on a daily basis. Now, I can't do it for you, but I can give you some great encouragement as to why you should be questioning everything that's coming at you from official sources and even a lot of the non-official sources. Thinking as clearly and independently as is possible so that you can recognize fact from fiction and sift truth from error. It's becoming more important than ever. And uh, this is what we're all about. This is the never-ending quest for clarity. And I've got some, uh, I actually have some pretty tough stuff to cover in this hour. Let me start by thanking LifesavingFood.com for being one of my sponsors of the show. You can just go to their website and the sponsor link that I provide in my daily show notes at the Brian Hyde Show. 
Click on the link. Take a look around. You will find emergency preparedness supplies. You'll find food storage. I guarantee you'll see something there that you'll go, you know what? That would make sense. That would bring me peace of mind in these troubled times. And you can take it from there. All right. How brave are you feeling? I'm ready to broach a topic that uh, is, I'm, I'm already kind of on a watch list here. YouTube has, has already reached out and, you know, dinged me a couple of times. You're talking about things you shouldn't be talking about. Well, I'm going to go uh, and uh, point out, look, you see that? That's, there's another elephant in the room right there. And by bringing this elephant up, it's a very good possibility that the algorithms are going to sniff me out and either mute part of uh, of my episode or they're going to uh, just flat out to throw another strike at me. They'll bring it on. This needs to be spoken and it needs to be talked about. Here's the question that's going to make a lot of people, you know, their, their knee is going to jerk. Why are so many young people dying suddenly? Now, Annie Holmquist, writing for intellectualtakeout.org, has some very relevant examples as well as some pointed questions as to what is happening and why it's being ignored. She says, if the push notifications on my computer are any indication, an alarming trend is unfolding before our eyes. Young, seemingly healthy individuals are dropping like flies, dying suddenly. Now, it wasn't always like this. Sure, the death notifications of high-profile figures would come occasionally, but they were usually for those in their 80s or 90s who had simply come to the end of a long life or for young individuals who had committed suicide. But now it's different. And she gives some examples here. The other day, it was Baltimore Ravens linebacker Jalon Ferguson. He was 26 and had played three seasons of professional football. No cause of death was given, according to CNN. Then there was 25-year-old Caleb Swanigan. The former NBA player had been the 2017 Big Ten Player of the Year at Purdue University. The coroner report concluded that Swanigan died of natural causes, according to CBS. A few days before Swanigan's death was revealed, Danielle Hampson, the fiancé of X Factor star Tom Mann, died on their wedding day. The Daily Mail reported she did not suffer from any known health problems and her cause of death is unknown. She was only 34. Now, Annie Holmquist says the deaths of these three individuals happened or were reported on only in the last few days. And these are just high-profile instances. Now, if this many celebrities are unexpectedly dropping dead, how many average non-celebrity deaths are occurring with individuals in their prime years and health? The answer is potentially quite a few. A Daily Mail headline proclaimed in early June, healthy young people are dying suddenly and unexpectedly from a mysterious syndrome. The syndrome, known as Sudden Adult Death Syndrome, or SADS, seems to affect the heart, as doctors are encouraging people under 40 to get this primary organ checked. Now, good journalists are supposed to ask questions, says Annie, yet in the midst of what seems like a catastrophe in the making... She says, I don't see many in the media who are even curious about why we are suddenly seeing so many young people dying. So she says, I'll ask a few questions of my own. Could these sudden deaths be related to the mass rollout of the COVID vaccine we've seen in the last year and a half? And if so, why are these deaths seemingly on the rise even as COVID vaccinations are dropping, at least in the U.S.? Is it possible that the sudden increase in 
sudden adult death syndrome is due to the long-term health effects of the COVID vaccines? She says questions such as these are taboo and raised only by a handful of journalists, doctors, or scientists who want to know the truth. Now, they often pay for such questions by being canceled, ostracized, or by having their professional license revoked. Yet for those who have eyes to see, not only experience, but science as well, is beginning to reward their tenacity for finding the truth. Scientific studies are increasingly producing results that support a healthy skepticism regarding the experimental vaccines. For example, a recent study in the journal Andrology confirms that the COVID vaccines decrease sperm counts. Meanwhile, a study in science shows the ineffectiveness of the vaccine against the disease it is supposed to prevent. Furthermore, a new study, still in the preprint phase, shows that the vaccine's numerous adverse effects move the risk-benefit of vaccines into negative territory. Now, such studies call into question the boatloads of information we've been fed by public officials and scientific experts regarding the virus, the vaccine, and our response to both. And this is the hardest question that she asks here. Have we been sorely misled, and will such misleading end in serious harm to ourselves and our loved ones? Annie Holmquist says it shouldn't surprise us if such is the case. For as C.S. Lewis explains in The Abolition of Man, the power that scientific discovery and exploration brings is soon corrupted and used for control of the masses. Lewis wrote, The last men, far from being the heirs of power, will be of all men most subject to the dead hand of the great planners and conditioners, and will themselves exercise least power upon the future. Why is this the case? Well, Lewis says, man's conquest of nature, if the dreams of some scientific planners are realized, means the rule of a few hundreds of men over billions upon billions of men. There neither is nor can be any simple increase of power on man's side. Each new power won by man is a power over man as well. Each advance leaves him weaker as well as stronger. In every victory, besides being the general who triumphs, He's also the prisoner who follows the triumphal car, end quote. So Annie Holmquist says perhaps the ever-growing number of sudden and early deaths will jolt us awake to the fact that we, too, may be the prisoners following blindly behind the cars of experts who love to use today's scientific advances to promote tomorrow's control of society. Look, I get this is, this is an extremely uncomfortable subject for a lot of people. Trust me, it's not one that I eagerly bring up around our dinner table. About half of my family is vaccinated. The other half is not. And for those who are vaccinated, uh, you know, I don't want to see harm come to them. I don't want to, yeah, I told you so, as they're dying of some heart condition. I have to say... These are questions that have been around, though, for a while. These are questions that were being asked even as coercion was termed up to maximum level and people sought to punish the unvaccinated and blame the unvaccinated. Well, the only reason we're still under lockdowns or the only reason we have these, these uh, restrictions is because of the unvaccinated. I mean, I've, I've seen the charts myself, and there seems to be some pretty solid evidence that whatever COVID cases are going on now, um, I'm trying to remember if it was out of, uh, was it New Zealand? 
or perhaps it was uh, was England. I think it was New Zealand showing the number of COVID cases among the unvaccinated versus those who were vaccinated. It's it's not even close. The most dramatic rise in cases is among the vaccinated. And this is to say nothing of all the people who are, again, young and seemingly healthy, having serious issues, and in some cases dropping dead. I mean, that's that's pretty scary stuff. I did see a... a um, Oh, it was a tweet somebody had sent out yesterday. And, you know, on the one hand, it's like, ha ha, okay, that's 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 pretty edgy. But uh, this is someone tongue-in-cheek saying, just got my second booster. I'm so happy, I feel like my heart is going to explode. And I chuckle a little bit, but at the same time, I'm like, what's going to happen? What do you suppose will happen if it turns out that the, the ignoring of the long-term side effects... And that to damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead attitude comes back to bite us with many, many more people being seriously injured or killed because of their participation in a medical experiment that largely was forced upon most of the population. I don't imagine it being a very pretty thing. Not only from the sense of loss, but the people who pushed it and the people who are responsible for it. It's going to be the most unhappy day of their lives when that happens. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'd like to give a shout out here to Dixie Chiropractic. That's Dr. Ward Wagner. In fact, I have a link to his website, DixieCairo.com. Just click on it there in my show notes or just type it into your browser. If you or someone you love is dealing with pain, you should go see Dr. Wagner. And I don't care if it's neuropathy or if it's uh, bulging herniated discs or if you've been injured in a car accident. DixieCairo.com is the place to go to get yourself set up for an appointment. And, you know, the the strongest praise I've heard uh, for Dr. Wagner is this guy is a miracle worker. Now, look, I've dealt with chronic back pain myself for a long time, and it is, it's terrible how debilitating it is. And I think one of the longest walks that I ever made in my life was from my car to my chiropractor's door when, uh, when I had a bulging disc and was walking like I was about 95 years old and had just been rolled down a hill in a tractor tire. It was miserable. So if you need relief, go to DixieCairo.com. Give Dr. Wagner a shot. I think you'll be very happy with what he can do for you. Well, let's take a moment here to talk about an idea that strikes fear into the heart of the ruling class. You ready for for the idea that's going to just cause them to quake in their shoes? It's uh, this question. What if people actually controlled the government. Oh, I know. Yeah, politicians. Well, wait a minute. Uh, how can these citizens just, uh, how can we trust them? They're not professionals like us. I want to share with you an article by Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute. What if people actually controlled the government? He says, imagine, if you will, the following system. Government is managed by elected representatives who are in turn elected by the people. 
You with me so far? Government is further restrained by checks and balances between three branches, each of which is accountable ultimately to the people who live under the laws. Now, unlike the ancient system of government in which the only people who were truly free were the aristocracy, under this new system, every adult citizen has political rights. No one rules over anyone without accountability. Also part of this, no one in government has a permanent job that is exempt from oversight. The laws and rules under which people live are not invented by faceless bureaucrats, but rather by representatives with names who can be voted out. In that way, we give the idea of freedom the best possible hope. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, sounds dreamy, huh? A bit? We haven't had a system like this in the U.S. for a very long time, even if what he just mapped out more or less seems like what the U.S. Constitution set up. But he says there are two main reasons why we're so far from that ideal today. First, the U.S. system was supposed to exalt the judicial sovereignty of the several states, so that the central government was of secondary importance. Second, a fourth branch of government gradually came into existence. It's what we now call the administrative state. It consists of millions of employees with maximum power who answer to absolutely no one. The Federal Register lists 432 agencies that currently employ people who are beyond legislative reach. But they still make policy and determine the structure of the regime under which we live. But we, the people, have no real control over them. Not even the president can control them. This system was created with one piece of legislation in 1883 called the Pendleton Act. The New Deal exploited the new system. The administrative state got its, even got its own constitution in 1946 called the Administrative Procedures Act. And the 1984 Supreme Court decision in Chevron versus NRDC even entrenched deference to the agency's interpretation of the law. And the result is something the founders never imagined. Hundreds of three-letter agencies exercising, exercising rather hegemonic control over the country. Everyone got to know this system well from 2020, as the CDC invented myriad rules on the spot that shut businesses and churches and even legislated how many people you could have in your home for a party. Now, this problem vexed Donald Trump, who came to power with the promise to drain the swamp. And he soon discovered that he could not, because most federal employees were beyond his reach. Things got wildly out of hand after he made the enormous error of green-lighting lockdowns in a March 16, 2020 press conference. After that point, and all the way until the election, his presidential powers slipped ever further as the administrative bureaucracy wielded power without precedent. Two weeks before the election, the Trump administration innovated a solution. It was Executive Order 13957 that created a new category of federal employment called Schedule F. Any employee involved at any level in political making would be subject to presidential oversight. Now, it makes sense, says Jeffrey Tucker. These are executive-level agencies, so the president, because he bears responsibility for what they do, should have some personnel control over them. Well, this order was immediately reversed by Biden when he took office, leaving Schedule F a dead letter. The administrative safe is, state rather is safe, once again, from oversight. Jeffrey Tucker says, let's quote Trump's executive order at length so we can see the thinking here. Then we'll deal with the various objections. The executive order reads as follows, quote, 
to effectively carry out the broad array of activities assigned to the executive branch under law. The president and his appointees must rely on men and women in the federal service employed in positions of a confidential, policy-determining, policy-making, or policy-advocating character. Faithful execution of the law requires that the president have appropriate management oversight regarding the select cadre of professionals. The federal government benefits from career professionals in positions that are not normally subject to change as a result of a presidential transition, but who discharge significant duties and exercise significant discretion in formulating and implementing executive branch policy and programs under the laws of the United States. The heads of executive departments and agencies and the American people must also entrust these, these career professionals with non-public information that must be kept confidential. Given the importance of the functions they discharge, employees in such positions must display appropriate temperament, acumen, impartiality, and sound judgment. Due to these requirements, agencies should have a greater degree of appointment flexibility with respect to these employees than is afforded by the existing competitive service process. Further, Effective performance management of employees in confidential, policy-determining, policy-making, or policy-advocating positions is of the utmost importance. Unfortunately, the government's current performance management is inadequate, as recognized by the federal workers themselves. For instance, the 2016 Merit Principles Survey reveals less than a quarter of federal employees believe their agency addresses poor performers effectively. Separating employees who cannot or will not meet required performance standards is important, and it is particularly important with regard to employees in confidential, policy-determining, policy-making, or policy-advocating positions. High performance by such employees can meaningfully enhance agency operations, while poor performance can significantly hinder them. Senior agency officials report that poor performance by career employees in policy-relevant positions has resulted in long delays and substandard quality work for important agency projects, such as drafting and issuing regulations. Now here it says, Pursuant to my authority, under Section 3302 of Title V United States Code, I find that conditions of good administration make necessary an exception to the competitive hiring rules and examinations for career positions in the federal service of a confidential, policy-determining, policy-making, or policy-advocating character. And these conditions include the need to provide agency heads with additional flexibility to assess prospective appointees without the limitations imposed by competitive service selection procedures. Now, i got to tap the brakes here because we're coming up on our own commercial break, but we'll come back to this and as you're hearing this unfold, as you're hearing the, the text of this executive order, I mean, I'm not one for presidents. Oh, he's got a rule by executive order, but this is actually pretty sound in that it promotes greater accountability. Don't you wonder at some level, why was the Biden administration so quick to deep six this thing? Curious, isn't it? We'll come back to the story in just a few moments. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. 
A quick shout-out here to HSLAmmo.com. That would be my friend Spencer Worthington. Truly a great guy. And a guy who's providing a product that has uh, more uses than simply making things go bang. I mean, ammunition is a great way to convert money into skill, as in go get some training. You can never have too much training. It's also a great store of value, something that might be of consideration in a time where just hypothetically, if your money in the bank was slowly shrinking in its purchasing power, maybe you want to convert it into something that's a little easier to store than, say, uh, you know, precious metals. Or maybe you could even consider them a different type of precious metals. Just floating some ideas. Either way, if you find yourself in need of high-quality new or remanufactured ammunition, please click on the link for hslammo.com. Give them a shot, ha-ha, and uh, support my sponsors who help make this program possible. So back to this article from Jeffrey Tucker. What if people actually controlled the government? He zeroes in on this huge shift that has taken place not just recently, but actually more than 100 years ago. The creation of the administrative state, which has eventually become entrenched, it doesn't change depending on who's elected. It's just there. And it's growing like a cancer and has been for a long, long time. And so President Trump issued an executive order that would seek to bring some accountability Schedule F was the name of, of this creation that it, that it uh, enacted that would help provide more oversight for these federal employees and, if necessary, provide a way to fire those who are not performing. Moving on with the uh, actual text of the executive order, it says placing these positions in the accepted service will mitigate undue limitations on their selection. This action will also give agencies greater ability and discretion to assess critical qualities and applicants to fill these positions, such as work ethic, judgment, and ability to meet the particular needs of the agency. These are all qualities individuals should have before wielding the authority inherent in their prospective positions. An agency should be able to assess candidates without proceeding through complicated and elaborate competitive service processes or rating procedures that do not necessarily reflect their particular needs. Conditions of good administration similarly make necessary accepting such positions from the adverse action procedures set forth in Chapter 75 of Title V United States Code. This code requires agencies to comply with extensive procedures before taking adverse action against an employee. These requirements can make removing poorly performing employees difficult. Only a quarter of federal supervisors are confident that they could remove a poor performer. Boy, does that tell you something? Career employees in a confidential policy-determining, policy-making, and policy-advocating position wield significant influence over government operations and effectiveness. Agencies need the flexibility to expeditiously remove poorly performing employees from these positions without facing extensive delays or litigation. End quote. This could have been the key to uh, removing Dr. Fauci from power, which if I understand correctly... Um, that would have, uh, that would have likely happened with Fauci. I think Trump tried to, and then realized he can't do it. Why? Well, because this is a bureaucrat and this bureaucrat is not within your purview to remove from power. Back to Jeffrey Tucker's article. 
He says part of the order pushed an internal review of all agencies to reclassify employees, thus making them subject to normal standards of employment, the same ones that every person in the private sector adheres to. Now, why is there resistance, aside from the high-stakes effort to keep the current despotism in place? Jeffrey Tucker says, let's look at the sincere objections. Schedule F would bring back the spoils system. Now, the term itself is a smear of a system in which the elected leadership can actually make a difference in public life. Now, are cronies hired? Yes. Are good people sometimes fired? Probably. But the alternative is dictatorship by the bureaucracy itself, and that's what's truly intolerable. Instead of the spoil system, a state in which the elected leaders can enact policy by controlling personnel, is called representative democracy, which is also the system the Constitution gave us. Well, Trump issued Schedule F because he wanted more power. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says that depends on what you mean by more power. More power over the bureaucracy? Yes. But the driving motivation here was to emancipate power from being ruled by bureaucrats that he could not control. And it was also designed to stop the bureaucracy from working directly with the media to undermine through lies and smears the work of the administration. In words... In other words, the elected leaders absolutely do need more power over the deep state. That's a tough one to argue against. Then there's the objection of, well, this would gut government of expertise. And Jeffrey Tucker answers, there is this strange presumption that educational credentials and a permanent job equals expertise plus good outcomes. Now, that's very obviously untrue. Good outcomes come from basic competence and a work ethic. Those are in short supply in government precisely because the turnover rate is less than zero, unlike the private sector. Anyone who's worked in a federal agency knows this. The best way to unleash genuine expertise is through normal job accountability. Well, presidents would use this to politicize the bureaucracy. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says this is a decent point, but the bureaucracy is already heavily politicized and always in the direction of policies that push more power and money toward the government. Everyone knows this. Is there a danger that a radically and dangerous president would press bureaucrats into even further politicization? Yes, but there's an easy solution to this one. Cut the reach and power of the agencies themselves, consistent with the Constitution. Finally, a crucial point. Elected leaders could override the influence of private industry, which has captured their operations. Well, bureaucracies would get around this by minimizing Schedule F designations. Jeffrey Tucker says, yeah, they would certainly attempt this, but that would require that employees refrain from policy determining, policy making, or policy advocacy positions. That would be very great. If they eschewed Schedule F and did that anyway, the Office of Personnel Management could hunt them down and the agency itself would be responsible for illegal actions. Now, he says there are surely some downsides to the system, as Trump imagined it, but all of them trace to the inflated powers of the federal government itself. Yes, a vastly ambitious government machinery will always need bureaucracies, and they will always have problems with waste, abuse, and unneeded exercise of power. Perhaps then the best long-term effect of Schedule F would be to inspire a rethinking of government's role in a free society. He says it seems remarkable that the executive order creating Schedule F was issued at all. It needs to be pressed upon any future reformers as a path to revisit, ideally with legislative support. Until that time, 
There will continue to be the grave problem that our elected officials are positioned to be little more than dancing marionettes while the administrative state wields all the real power. He's right. By the way, there's a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. I strongly recommend get your mind around what he's suggesting here. The great danger that we face from the administrative state is that there are people who are wielding real power over us with none of the accountability that's supposed to come with that power. Can you see where that would be a very dangerous combination? And, and if you're having trouble visualizing it, can I just ask you, please rewind your memory to about two years ago. As businesses were failing due to, you know, these, these lockdown policies. As people languished trying to, to stay alive in an economy that had been artificially shut down. And by the way, that was doing nothing to stop the spread of the virus because these policies weren't enough to do that. Viruses continue to do what viruses do. If it had stopped the virus, well, we might have a slightly different discussion. It would still be wrong, but at least you could say, well, but look, it slowed it down. It made it stop, but it didn't. And it's still wrong for unaccountable power to be exercised over the people, at least if we're talking about legitimate government. Now, if we're talking about tyranny and you're ready to embrace that because I'm scared, well, I don't know what to tell you. We saw it through the mask mandates. We've seen it through the vaccine mandates. At what point would you be willing to draw the line and say, okay, this goes no further? Now, I realize I'm, I'm part of a very tiny minority of people who already drew that line and then not only drew the line in the sand, but turned it into a trench. But if government is not legitimately operating in your interests, by which I mean working to protect your natural rights. That's the whole reason it was called into existence in the first place. How can you be expected to give your loyalty and your obedience to it? It's not keeping its part of the contract. It's, it's not upholding its end of the agreement. You know, people like to throw the social contract around. Well, as part of the social contract, you know, you agreed when you chose to live here. Sorry, but uh, contracts have two parties. If the other party's not living up to its part, well, I'm under no obligation either. Try again. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back. Hey, if you haven't subscribed to my show notes, can I just offer this invitation? Go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. Click on the show notes. It doesn't matter which day, any day. You can just scroll down to the bottom of the show notes. There you'll see the subscribe button. And it's going to ask you to share your email address. Now, I hold this sacred. I do not share, I do not sell or give away your email address. I'm not here to sell you a bunch of stuff. I just want to make available some of the resources that I encounter on a day-to-day basis. What you do with that information, that's up to you. But I've uh, I've chosen pretty carefully the resources that I like to share with my fellow wrong thinkers. I'm not saying they're all going to be 100% right, but these are pretty well-vetted sources. 
They're the best that I can find under the circumstances. And I think you might have a great uh, take on what's going on in the world, as well as a better understanding of who you are and what you stand for. So please consider this your invitation to subscribe to my show notes. Let's talk for a moment about Hollywood. I think the disconnect between Hollywood and those of us who live in reality is getting larger by the minute. And if you've grown tired of all the woke, preachy zealotry that seems to permeate all the different movies, I, I haven't seen the new Buzz Lightyear movie, but I understand, oh yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's got its woke moments. It's like Hollywood can't help themselves. Got a great article here from Zero Hedge, Get Woke, Go Broke. Hollywood is dying and they deserve it. The article says Hollywood is dying, their various partners are dying, and they brought it on themselves. The entertainment and corporate news industry has long had a cringe-inducing leftist bias, but for many years, their propaganda and their motivations remained comparatively subtle. Then something happened. Maybe it was the election of Donald Trump, maybe it was a unified decision within corporate culture to take the mask completely off and reveal the true ugliness underneath. Or maybe it was just pure arrogance, whatever the cause. Hollywood and all the related appendages of the Tinseltown religion suddenly turned openly militant and the zealotry was palpable. Now, this is a dynamic that had been developing for some time, but it truly became an international phenomena around 2016 onward. And it's important to note that around this same time, there was a burgeoning revelation among conservatives and many moderates that our popular culture had been overrun by people with an agenda. And they did not have our best interest at heart. We had been lax in our vigilance. Many thought that pop culture was stuff for children and the real fight was in politics. Well, they were wrong. The first group that really took notice and spoke up was video game consumers. And this led to open opposition to leftists hijacking the industry and spreading like a cancer into video games journalism. And of course, as soon as people expressed distrust, the leftists attacked them as racist, homophobes, bigots, sexist, and misogynists. A typical gaslighting response that's all too familiar today. Known as Gamergate, leftists to this day still rabidly froth at the mouth over the mere mention of integrity in video games journalism. Leftists really hate it when you expose them. And there have been many other moments of exposure since 2016 from the negative reactions to Comicsgate, feminist Ghostbusters, feminist Star Wars, woke Star Trek, woke Doctor Who, woke Batwoman, woke He-Man, woke Lord of the Rings, critical race theory in television, trans, LGBT and CRT propaganda in children's programming, etc. It's becoming endless. Around 95% of all popular entertainment contains multiple layers of leftist messaging. The market's abs as utterly saturated with it, rather. And this kind of overwhelming propaganda is familiar. It's a methodology used in communist regimes and authoritarian governments throughout the 20th century, including the Soviet Union and Mao's China. And it almost slipped right under the noses of the majority of Americans and Western nations. The goal is simple. Make everything political. Want to escape the real world for a couple of hours into a fantasy land? Want to see daring tales of classical heroes and villains? Want to experience histories that actually happened or at least very close to the historical record? Are you looking for an archetypical experience, a mytho mythological exploration of the human mind or human heart, something that almost anyone could relate to? Sorry, you're not allowed to escape. You're not allowed to examine universal ideas and ideals. Every single story must be told within the narcissistic framework or prison of modern political ideology. 
even in stories set a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. The extreme political left wants you to think about their beliefs and viewpoints all day long, every day. They want you to assume that their ideology is the only ideology. They want you to assume that the majority of the population thinks as they think. It's called manufacturing consensus. But the problem is, the public is aware of the agenda, and they're looking for the subliminal and not-so-subliminal messages. They see the narratives, and they're sick and tired of it. Thus, the mantra of get woke, go broke was born. The more the leftists and media double down on inserting their politics into every single product, the more broke they get. Case in point, the continuing decline of the largest media entities in the world. The streaming giant Netflix is now imploding with a multitude of failed woke projects. The company is dealing with a recent subscriber loss of 200,000 and a projected subscriber loss of over 2 million by next month. The company actually began to falter last year, despite COVID lockdowns in many states that should have encouraged people to buy into streaming services as a means to deal with boredom. Beyond that, the Netflix stock price collapsed from almost $700 a share to $190 a share in less than six months. Now, the company will never openly admit it, but woke programming is mostly to blame. Netflix released an internal memo to employees last month indicating that they would be producing more content for consumers of differing political views and even suggested that an employee that has a problem, any employee that has a problem with that, should quit. A major, a major problem with woke, within woke companies is the attitude of low-level, low-value, and low-intelligence employees thinking they should be in charge. Now it appears that Netflix is trying to clean house with hundreds of people fired in the last couple of weeks. But it's too little, too late. Disney is another huge example of get woke, go broke. And how it's becoming a social rule. The company is rife with leftist cultism to the point that it avidly defended the sexualization of children in public schools. Disney's attacks on Florida and its stated goal of disrupting the legally ratified and widely supported anti-grooming bill has revealed the disgusting underbelly of the conglomerate for all to see. Disney wants your kids to be exposed to sexual discussions and mentally ill teachers looking for psychological validation. Now, when you target people's kids, even the normies start to take notice. Disney has now suffered multiple box office flops and streaming network failures. From Ms. Marvel to Obi-Wan Kenobi to Lightyear, the media giant is crumbling. You can only put so many CRT and LGBT messages into your movies before it starts to add up to box office poison. And you can't declare fealty to the leftist agenda as a company and then expect the majority of Americans who are not extreme leftists to give you their hard-earned money. Disney stock prices collapsed this past year from $200 down to $90. The company is currently relying on continued traffic through its theme parks to sustain it. But with gas prices inflating to record highs, it's unlikely that park revenues and tourist dollars will continue to levitate. One movie that did do extremely well this year from every angle, including from a budget standpoint, was Top Gun Maverick. Tom Cruise's love letter to fans of the original film had a budget of $170 million and has grossed over $1 billion globally so far, crushing every other competing film, including Disney's woke film Lightyear. 
With zero leftist propaganda injected into the Maverick story and a perfect balance of fan appreciation and nostalgia, proponents of the war against the woke cult have been proven correct. Audiences want nothing to do with progressive politics in their entertainment. It is a fact. Now, what leftists seem to have forgotten is that they don't own the consumer. They can pump out an endless array of woke media, but they can't force the product, the public rather, to buy their products. We own them. They are the consumer's bitch. Activism and entertainment might be viable at times, but the market has spoken when it comes to woke, and the market says no. I think that's a pretty positive note to wrap up today's show. Now, look, I don't watch very much of of anything coming out of Hollywood. I can't tell you the last time that I went to see a movie in the theater. I think the last time I did it was probably Michael McLean's Forgotten Carols. It's been a while. And I'm not saying you should, you know, spend all your time seething and raging about how corrupt and how, you know, political Hollywood is making everything. To me, the, the, the best approach is simply just withdraw your consent or better still, find something better on which to focus your attention and your efforts. I know, what a concept, huh? There's a lot of good stuff happening in the world. I'd wager a lot of it's happening right there within the walls of your own home. Pay closer attention to your family. Reach out to the people around you. That's how you make the world a better place. And if you want to escape, don't forget the power of books. They still work. This is The Brian Hyde Show.